Episode 79 of No Guitar is Safe, the podcast where players plug in and play, is brought to you by Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com. And today features the amazing Telecaster master, Jim Campolongo. Guitar player, play better, sound better. Jude Gold here. Thanks for listening to No Guitar is Safe. What an amazing guest we have today. Jim Campolongo is just a master of the Telecaster, as I said. And that's just understating matters. He's a truly deep musician and listener of music who happens to play guitar. And his kind of guitar is that magical thing that happens when you just have like a guitar, a cable, and a little Fender amp cranked up. He's got that old school thing, man. He's got 12 albums. We're listening to a couple tracks here from Orange, which is one of his recent albums. He also has a project with Nora Jones, the intergalactically famous singer and piano player, Nora Jones. That band is called The Little Willies. They have two records out. Nora has also appeared on some of Campolongo's solo tracks. Jim has also worked with Ricky Lee Jones, no relation to Nora, but a great story as you're going to hear. He also has played with Joe Goldmark, the great pedal steel player, and also with Cake, recorded one of their most famous guitar parts is actually Jim Campolongo. I love that song. We're going to check that part out coming up. And I hope you appreciate the spirit of adventure that goes into making each of these episodes because we take that copter and we fly into places because I want to go into their lair, man. And I got to say, this one, wow, we're going from Harlem all the way across Manhattan, across the river to Brooklyn to Camp Alongo's house. And of course, I'm speaking symbolically because we all know that there's a lot of strict flight ordinances over New York City. So you know what? I just said heck with it. I just took the subway that day. And I'm on the subway with my backpack full of gear. And I get to Jim's house, and it's just an amazing place where the guy lives and breathes guitar. You know, I love that feeling. You really get a sense of, of his dedication to music. To be clear, I was actually up in Harlem at Sinai Hospital, which I think is in Harlem. I was visiting my uncle on his last days on Earth. Not to get too tear jerky here, but you know, my uncle was a fantastic cat. I literally knew him my entire life. I literally met him the day I was born, although I don't remember that as clearly as he does. And he, he kind of gamed the system, you know, he fought cancer for over two years and fought it amazingly well the type of cancer that ultimately ends up in leukemia, which you don't usually win. At least I haven't heard of anybody win against that. But he kind of gamed the system. He had a, a roast. He kind of got to sort of cheat death and attend his own wake, if you will, his own memorial, because he got like 70 of his closest friends and family, and we all gave toasts and roasts, and for over three hours gave tributes to him and got to look him in the eyes and, and hug him and, and tell him the, about what he meant to us while he was still with us. That was 10 months ago. He was a smart cat. He was an actuary and he was recognized in the industry. He was a prof- not a professor, but he was a doctor, a PhD, 
so I like to call him Dr. Gold. Jeremy Gold, New York Times, wrote him up after he died. I'm very proud of him. And he fought for the little man in the, um, in the industry of pensions and stuff. He stood up for what he thought were irresponsible practices, even if it meant not being the most popular actuary with Wall Street, etc. He stood up to those cats and even to people within his own industry when he felt that maybe they could be doing a better job. And that is <laughs> so fucking kick-ass, pardon my French. He took a stand with his life. That was my uncle, Uncle Jeremy. And uh, that was a couple months ago. So this interview actually sort of makes me feel like we're transporting back to the summer. It's still basically summer. At least it is here in California where I now am recording this. So yeah, we're going to head over to Camp Olongo's house Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. When we open, he's showing me a song, Blues for Roy, that he wrote for one of his big influences, Roy Buchanan. Thanks again to Zoom Recorders for the H6. Love that thing. All right, y'all. I'll see you in Brooklyn. You don't have to do this. Um, yeah. but. Great. Jim Campolongo, man, thank you so much for letting me play your song on one of your awesome Telecasters here in your incredible pad in Brooklyn, <laughs> New York, surrounded by 
so much vinyl, first of all. <laughs> and uh, I mean, just the room alone, I could talk so much about. You got these great guitars on the walls. In your hand, you have a 59 Telecaster. I mean, I could just cry looking at it. Uh, you can tell it's a 59 when you, you're like, oh, there it is. Just I like, have a lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I said, no, this is a dream music, music room right here. You've got not just one, but two of my very favorite amp, or one of my favorite amps, Fender Princeton Reverb. Looks like maybe three. Four, I think. Four. He doesn't even know, folks, how many Princetons he has. (laughs) One's hiding, I think. Uh, I think I have more. I I don't know. I mean, I'm not really a big collector guy, like, to be honest. I know these are almost all my guitars. These are all my amps, except for uh, one Princeton I keep at my mom's house in the Bay Area. So, yeah, I mean, I I, I do. Yeah, and a Supro. There's another. Yeah, see, there's another something down there that's yeah. a black there's two princetons down there so. i love it man but no i know you're not like a gear hoarder or you you're a player man yeah, and i would thanks. say that you, i'm gonna call you a cwc which is a chet wood certify if he <laughs> if he was still around oh he would definitely certify know. you as a cgp that's, yeah, that's now before nice. we even get too far ahead mm-hmm. of ourselves tell us what was the name of that song that you just taught me well uh we did uh blues for roy which, oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, off uh, orange which i thought would be fun just to kind of you know it's a guitar yeah. crowd so i was gonna play my little 225 but some of the volume swells and stuff people might like it was oh, fun uh, yeah. to play it you played no, it really no well wah-wah pedal there folks can you show us how you do your little sure. you're getting those sweet well, wah-wah sounds i said sweet like jack blackwood sweet <laughs> well it's um you know treble position isn't gonna hurt um usually my volume knobs all the way up but it depends like yeah that's kind of some buzz so i might navigate that too like i'm getting pretty good at like doing i mean two different directions oh, that's cool yeah you got your your middle finger on the volume and the little finger little on, finger on the tone now, dual this, control at the same time but the thing is is like uh, is one should keep the tone all the way off like the tones on yeah. zero so you got that sweep yeah. so it's so I'm going from yeah. zero to ten that one I didn't quite get there I go Zero to ten, folks. That was kind of noise. Is that the stock volume? I mean, stock tone pot? Yeah, that it's came all on stock. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day? Yeah, it's all stock. Um, you know, and even my amp isn't really cranked. I'm playing through the aux, but it's not like a super crank. I mean, if the Princeton's on ten or a Deluxe is on ten, it really sears. And one thing I like about the top loader is it isn't gonna, you know, break your eardrums too much. Um, so anyway, it's it's really about rolling your hand from your little finger to your middle yeah. finger. You don't need Jimi Hendrix hands, you know, to. Yeah. Uh... So anyway, it's like yeah. a roll. Good to see you again. It's been 16 years since we did an interview, which <laughs> is crazy. You look the same. <laughs> I, I wish I could say that. Oh, no, you do too, man. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, well, if you do what you love and you stay busy and you work seven yeah. days a week, it keeps you young. Right. Absolutely. I mean, it doesn't feel like work. That's for sure. <laughs> now, uh, you in passing mentioned that you're going through the Universal Audio Ox, which is on top of your amplifier, which a friend of mine, James Santiago, genius guitarist and gear designer and mathematician and whatever it is that he does. <laughs> He's a wizard. He's a Harry Potter who can blaze on guitar. Mm-hmm. He had a role in making that. I guess it's, in, it's right today you're just using it as like a speaker attenuator to 
Correct. Yeah. But it also um, is incredible for plugging straight into your Logic or Pro Tools. It's really great. You know, the sounds are really authentic. Uh, it sounds good low. You know, some uh, some of them don't. This one does. I'm also learning a lot. Um, I mean, I'm learning a lot, period, because I, you know, just plug right into the amp and I'm a little impatient. I use a wah-wah pedal sometimes, but that's real simple. You know, I guess I am an old dog learning new tricks, but one of the things that's really uh, been helpful is it's it's got features like with rug, without rug, uh, a choice of mics, a choice of room, a, cho- a plate reverb. I've yeah. learned how to set a plate reverb because the, uh, you know, the, the examples they have are, are just beautiful. Oh yeah, um, and you're talking about when you recorded in into your system. Into my system. Right now it's purely just a power soak. Right, but if you go into the computer, right. it's it's all there and you know, yeah. you could save your sounds. You can just have a room mic sound. It sounds like super blues sound. Um, and you know, I'm still learning. Uh, I'm a pretty slow learner and like I said, I've been kind of spoiled just by plugging right in. But I think it's, I think it's great. And before we go Again, too much further. Tell us about your weekly gig in case anyone's coming to New York City. You've got to do this. You've got to see Camp Alongo. <laughs> well, thanks. Um, we play Rockwood Music Hall every Monday at 10 p.m. Usually I'm with the my group who we've been together for five and a half years with Josh Dion, who plays drums, and he's a great vocalist. But now we maybe have him sing one song a night. He has his own band, Paris Monster, and they're really taken off. And Chris Morrissey, who plays bass, and he's uh, got a new record out in this video. It's, it's great. And and uh, he's sometimes I feel like Chris is like composing while I'm playing and it's you know I try and follow his compositions he's you know been together five and a half years still look forward to it every Monday and uh, that's where we play and so far so good that's killer I mean a weekly in New York is wonderful what neighborhood is the rock it's in? Lower East Side it's right on Allen at Houston so Lower East Side and you recorded a live record there let's hear a track from that I have to start with I'm Helen Keller and you're a Waffle Iron because some songs you just hear the title and you just gotta hear what the song is about. We uh, we ended up having a real nice version of that track so we put it on, I think it opens the record. never played it like we played it this one evening and uh which made me uh want to put it on the record i I, in some ways i kind of regret the title because uh some people find it mean-spirited and it's you know i i I want anything but that um but it's like the it's a twist on a joke like yeah yeah uh and uh you know how did uh, helen keller burn her finger she was trying to read the waffle iron and uh you know i mean i've actually uh you know i have no i guess it's disrespectful to helen keller and i don't mean that but uh it was really uh a uh um, a metaphor for a relationship I was in. I, so I laid it down. This is years ago, you know, um, and uh, uh, back in, I don't know, 2011 or 12 or something. And so uh, that's the uh, story be- behind that title. But it's a real nice track and it was a real nice, we, we did the improv section and people dropped out and it sounds kind of like Miles Davis for a second. And that's why I really liked it because I love his work from the... Uh, 
the 70s and late 60s. It starts with this. And what? Now, if it's a little louder, you know, I'll kind of get the. Um, et cetera, et cetera. I know it's a little loud for the apartment, not that my neighbors care. Um, but I was trying to get the sound of uh, like a couple amps with, uh, with the vibrato going. Um, and I almost play it to where it gets out of time a little. Like, like that's tremolo. Like tremolo on 10 on an amp that really has good tremolo. And so that was the idea that. The other thing that's kind of nice is I just kind of play this little egg. That's my favorite part of the tune because I go, sorry. So it ends up being like a, you know, a minor major 70 kind of sound just based off the harmonics on the fourth fret. Uh, you know, that's right. a major seven, right? But if you are, let's say you play a minor third. Where you did harmonics fourth fret? Yeah, the fourth fret, which the fourth fret is the notes you're playing. Like, in other words, if you're on the fourth fret and playing above the fourth fret, it's a G sharp, C sharp. You know, you know this, Jude. F sharp, B, D sharp, which is your major seven. And then that, this one's a little hard to get, but it's. Dude, the, that, but that's so cool. I never thought about that as a major seven chord. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of things, but if you just. It's got the third in the like bass you, of the if, harmonic. Um, it's like a so you got this. E major 7. So you just kicked on your boomerang looper, and you're playing it backwards with your boomerang. Yeah. Now I played a minor third and it changes the complexion of that. So the beautiful. other thing that's cool is like, you know, if let's say we're in F sharp that's that's your minor third. So it all changes, you know. Uh, it's probably very diatonic with G sharp minor, except for the C sharp. So, you know, it's sky's the limit. And so, and then of course, these are all on the, uh, the ninth fret too. But they're more confusing because it isn't the note you're playing. Yeah. You know, it isn't above. But sometimes oh, yeah. I intuitively know after all this time. So anyway, that's the, the most interesting thing I could explain about. I'm Helen Keller I and you're a waffle love, iron. Thank you. Thank you <laughs> for doing that. And I just want to say that I love your use of harmonics. It just slays me like on Nellie Bly from your uh, Honeyfingers record. Breakdown in the middle. Mm -hmm. 
Again, that's Jim Campolongo and Honeyfingers. Album is Last Night, This Morning. And the song is Nellie Bly, and the whole tune is beautiful, but let's start with the middle there. What's going on there? So the harmonic thing, I, I thought, hey, I wonder if I could play this melody in harmonics, and it's like the easiest thing in the world. This is the only... So it's... Oh, yeah. uh, kind of nice oh this is so beautiful oh no. you're beautiful oh and the the other part and i don't know if i could play it i was hoping you'd forget and then i brought it up but it's it, it goes to b and then f from right from a and it's uh and i can't remember that that's it so it's just a lick and b which is nice with the suspension yeah. and then a little thing in six. And the other lick is, is really um, over an F chord. And it sounds, but it sounds better with the F. That's why I'm putting it down. So it's like I a it. uh, flat five scale, uh, you know, um, what do they call that in the mode? Well, Lydian? Lydian, yeah, it's a Lydian, but because it, it's really a C, you know, C yeah. scale over F. But. Yeah. So how do you? I call those cascades. I mean, a lot of like where you cascade between fretted notes and open strings. Yeah. And you're really cool about. You're really good at doing that with like those and harmonics and mixing the the fretted notes with. Yeah, the open I strings. try. Um, you know, to make it interesting and pretty. Uh, you know, I'm certainly no Lenny Bro or anything. And uh, a lot of again, a lot of the things I do are the same. I just might. If, for example, that's a C scale, but um, I use it as a Lydian scale over the F. But if it was in the C, I might use it in C too. It's this very simple scale. It's just, you know, if, if you were gonna play a C uh, scale in fifth position, the decision yeah. here, you know, one might go back a half step. I would reach, yeah. you know, you go, yeah. you go up to go down. You're reaching out to the ninth yeah. fret of the fourth then, string. So that's pretty easy. And that sounds okay. But if you could, you play any open string in lieu of a closed note. So it's, here comes E. Yep. And, and the thing is, is to so the hold, E is an open string. Hold the F against the E. So you get yeah. that. That overlap. Overlap. And this is the only tricky part. But it's all pretty. And it sounds more exotic over F. It does. Here it is. And then, of course, you're doing a behind-the-nut bend on the fifth string there. Yeah, there so I are. went... So that's the yeah. uh, major third going up to the uh, flat five. You and know. I've never really explored neck bending but you are a telly neck bender you know, like <laughs> earlier just a couple few minutes ago you uh, you know reach behind the headstock and push the neck yeah i mean it's like 
I mean, if I really got to do it, like, you know, I, yeah. I can almost get a half step. Mostly it's just, you know, I could just do it by pressing against yeah, my you're, body. You're holding a cord and then you, with your strumming arm, you're pressing against the body sort of. Yeah, I'm like pulling the neck yeah. towards me. Like, yeah. Like, uh, That's how you go sharp. <laughs> That. It sounds kind of chorus on a real like, uh, you know, I'll do that or sorry. That's the five chord. Yeah, beautiful. It gets kind of a dreamy sound. Now, I had always heard of you, Jim, like from around the Bay Area. <laughs> when we both used to live there. And then, gosh, for the first time I tried to see you, I failed because it was Ricky Lee Jones. And uh, I got you, fired. You did two nights <laughs> and I came the second night and there was just her and her piano singing and she had a bass player, which is a really kind of odd thing. Electric she had bass Mike player. Watt. Of, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she had Mike Watt. <laughs> yeah, I got fired the first night. I mean, it was pretty weird. I've never talked about that, but you know, I, 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 I'm sure I, part of it was me, but I know, um, I, I, I went there and I always try and wear a suit and like look nice. So I got to the gig, you know, I heard like, hey, you're going to back up Ricky Lee Jones. So I like bought eight records and like learned these like super hard tunes. Like they're kind of opaque, you know, in some ways, like on her piano stuff. And uh, they got there and uh, kind of late and I was there. And the first thing she said to me, she goes, what are you, a male model? Because <laughs> I was wearing a suit. And I said, no, I'm here to play guitar. And she needed a set of strings. So I gave her a set of strings. I think I changed them. And then we just started playing. And uh, I mean, it was kind of harrowing. Like she just would play and, you know, no direction. I didn't know what song was going on. And Mike, Mike was, was kind of... going all Chuck Berry on you. <laughs> she was going all Chuck Berry, but it wasn't Chuck Berry. It was like force with modulations. And But I was trying and uh, my best. And, uh, you know, and she, I mean, I don't want to diss her, but, you know, she'd go, uh, boys don't play on the next one, you know? And I'm like, okay. So we'd lay out and Mike was, Mike was really being a trooper. Like, uh, then, then she decided to play, um, rebel rebel. And uh, you know, it's funny. I probably can't do that right now. It's like, whatever, like right. it's, it's close, but no cigar. Like yeah. I'd need a second. And she said, play rebel rebel. And I probably did that. Can you play it instantly? Rebel rebel. I mean, I remember it's something like go for it. See, there you go. Like you should have done the gig. <laughs> no. Like I kind of stumbled on it. And I, then I well, got it. There's a it. famous story of somebody, I forget who was playing that song in his hotel room on just noodling and trying to get it. Little did you know that like David Bowie was in the room next door and was getting pissed that he's playing wrong, knocked on his door or something, and David freaking Bowie was at the door. Let me show you how to play it. And shut up. So we, we well, all need David Bowie it, in those It wouldn't situations. take me an hour and a half, but I was on stage and I probably did that and then got it yeah, yeah. like 20 <laughs> seconds into it, you know. But she looked at me and she was like kind of, I forget what she said. And I, I said, 
hey, I'm trying my best, you know, to her. And, and the crowd heard it and there was a little laugh like in the crowd. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the gig, I heard like, hey, you don't need to come back uh, tomorrow. And I was like, okay, no problem. But I got fired. But, uh, you know, she's, she's, um, she's great, you know. I, I really thought it was funny, the whole thing. That is a really incredible real life music story and i you know i i enjoyed that that's a very funny you put us right in the chair man it's the truth it was about you know 18 years ago so i i've I've, you know the healing process has happened man (laughs) at least they told you usually they don't even tell you have you been fired (laughs) you know i remember one time i was playing with justin dylan and great singer songwriter and we did a lot of stuff a lot of shows we even went to england and then and and one day he just sat me down it was just like i don't know when it was 2002 one day he, he invited me out for coffee and he said, he's so cool. And he's like, you know what? I'm just wanting you to know that I'm really thinking of going in a kind of different direction. And I've been playing with this guy and Max Butler, I think his name, great guy. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's doing a lot of cool stuff with uh, mandolins and mandocellos and this and that. And you know, that's just where I'm headed right now. And I really enjoyed working with you, but I want to take a break. I mean, I just respected him so much for the way that he said it. Yeah, I mean, that's really not getting fired. I, I mean, he let me go. I mean, that you was know, like my main gig at the time. You there, Jude. I mean, I gave a real got fired right at the end of the gig story. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, but it's, I guess that's only happened once. I mean, and, um, I don't expect... He was not super famous to the point of like Ricky Lee Jones. So. Yeah, they, I they was... They can be different. Was, Stars are different. I was thrilled, mm. though I didn't know her music. Like, I only yeah. knew Chuckies and yeah. Love. Like, so... Again, oh, we have to play that riff in case anyone has not heard it. It's one of the coolest guitar riffs of all time. See, I don't know that lick. Yes, you do. <laughs> don't lie. Oh yeah, right. I, see, I I knew that lick then. <laughs> that's good. She I just remember that because that's the first time I personally learned an E7 chord. That she one. didn't play that yeah, one. Yeah, she either. didn't play that. <laughs> but there's another artist who I always like. I know that I've heard you on the, on the prolonging the magic album oh, from yeah. Cake, which me and all my posse back in the East Bay. That was like, we love that album. I think uh, you might know Zan McCurdy. He plays in the band guitar. He's right. From, we went to high school with him. But has even if Zan, even if it was somebody else, we love that record. And I know you played on some of the big songs on it. Do you remember which ones? I don't remember uh, though. Well, we're going to find out right now. Because <laughs> Something like Never Let Me Go, I think I played oh, yeah. on. And I and they actually gave me a little credit on that one, which was really generous of John. That is a funky tune. I, I really enjoyed working with John. He was uh, John McRae's like, great artist and really easy to work with. Uh, and I do some really, in, is that the one I do some really intricate intro on? That was song was all over the radio, and I was like, I knew that was you. That was really a thrill because, um, you know, I did hear that. I, I remember being in like stuck in traffic on uh, going to the Bay Bridge and and hearing it, you know, in a car next to me, um, which was a thrill. Uh, that's that that's happened to me a few times on different records, but that record in particular, it's an older record, but it's a great record. I, there was a track on there I didn't play on because Chuck Prophet played on some of that record. I don't know if he's on, but it's it's like Sheeps Go to Heaven, Something Goes to Hell. Uh, 
It's a great song. There's a lot of great songs on oh, that yeah. record. It's a great record. It's a great record. Prolonging the Magic. And and you have the, the cake doormat here at your <laughs> place here in Brooklyn, right outside your front door, which I love. Yeah, they sent me that and a gold record, which I don't have up here, but um, I do have the doormat. I've had that doormat for you know decades i guess a decade and a half or something decade, yeah that sounds about right it's and just it's just such a it's so cake to have that as a piece of album swag yes let's come up with a doormat with a cake and a cake word the word cake and a pig yeah on it <laughs> wipe your feet on this yeah <laughs> that's classic did you play on another song in that record or? yeah i played on it maybe two or three i can't yeah. remember now uh yeah. i'd have to go back i don't have the record actually um, I was on eBay looking for it about a year ago to get the LP, but it was, I think it was super expensive. And I thought, ah, maybe not today, you know, but I, I think I should just do it. Cause I, aside, I mean, aside from that, I'm on the record. I just love the record. Well, I got to take a time out here and ask you about this insane vinyl addiction <laughs> that you have here. Every one of these records is in a plastic sheath like someone who's very serious about collecting comics or something. Yeah. And I mean, I don't even know where to start because the shelves are across the room, across the entire wall, three shelves high. There's an awesome Django Reinhardt box set over there, but what's going on with your habit, brah? Well, it's it's uh, something, you know, I have uh, the first record I ever bought when I was 12 here. Um, you know, Jimi Hendrix's greatest hits with the poster. and uh, Awesome. So, I mean, it's something I've just always done. I've, I mean, I'm always have bought LPs, and uh, and I've pretty much have most of the LPs that I bought that were important to me. Um, I have thinned out the collection a lot. Um, you know, it's it's mainly all really good stuff. I mean, I, I, I don't know if there, somebody may look at it and think that's a clinker or something, but I, I, it, all the records mean a lot to me. Um, I mean, I'm just seeing so much cool stuff. Miles Davis, Jimi Hendrix, John Coltrane. Yeah, I mean, I have probably uh, uh, one of the, I mean, I have a lot of steel guitar solo records. Um, I have a lot of truck driving records. Um, What's a truck driving record? Well, it's, it's, it's like Red Simpson. He writes about being a trucker. But it's, they're really usually like a, Born to be a Trucker by Red Simpson. I mean, I would say, you know, that's a great song. It's got, it's a beautiful melody. And it's about a guy who's made some life decisions and it's just too late to go back. He was born to be a trucker. He's uh, the lifestyle. Maybe he isn't agreeing with him or his relationship. He misses his wife. She doesn't like it when he goes out for a number of days. So it's like really easy to relate to. You know, they're not all about this, you know, CBs or whatever. Uh, so I just love the genre and it's got great guitar work. always waiting with two loving arms when I get home. She tells me that she's lonely every minute while I'm gone. There's a guy named Gene Moles, M-O-L-E-S, who plays on those tracks and 
the guy is amazing uh, and great sounds. It's just some of my favorite music, and then I just started collecting. So I don't just collect to collect, but truck driving stuff I did. Um, you know, I thought if it's a truck driver record, I'm getting it. So there's certain parts of my collection. I have every Segovia record on Decca for example, wow. um, because I think it's a great era and it's a great source of uh, uh, information and learning. I learned, learned about composers uh, and different composers. I tend to go for the Spanish composers and I learned about that and then investigated them. So that's what's behind all this. Do you ever play any of the Spanish stuff or on an electric guitar? Or? A little, we'll yeah. It. Yeah, I'm starting to do that. I, I actually started doing uh, Gymnopodies 1, 2, and 3 on electric, and it works out pretty well. I mean, I don't know. You know. Yeah, I clammed already, but... I mean, it's really uh, kind of appropriate in a way. Uh, Beautiful. bottom there I go it's hard to keep the you really have to be light on the base uh. and even now you're doing hybrid you still have a pick but yeah. you're using your fingers on oh, your yeah. right hand as well that's Segovia no I'm just kidding <laughs> that's Jerry Reed but yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a little out of tune there. But yeah, I mean, I do the hybrid thing. I play classical guitar, though, without a pick, but I've been starting to bring the repertoire onto electric. It's been fun. And, and in Gymnopedy was like the one I was most confident to do on a show. But I have some others that I'm not so confident, but I've been working on them. Now, when you record a solo piece like awful pretty pretty awful is that kind of live with your boomerang well no i didn't use the boomerang but i did technically that i i went you know you know whatever it was yeah. you know, to a click track and then laid it down. I mean, I did that tune fast. I remember that day we did, um, we tried Backburner and it didn't work because uh, I couldn't get a good sound and it just wasn't, it wasn't clicking. And, uh, you know, since when you're in the studio you feel like you're spraying money through a fire hose and <laughs> and uh, so we abandoned that and i felt like okay well we have to get something and we did awful pretty next and i swear i think it took us an hour um it uh, yeah. tops uh, so i laid down a uh, they put a click track on i played the rhythm put the, the head over it i think i had a maybe a little overdub that I don't even know if we used, but that's a nice track. I, I, I'm proud of that. I actually didn't want to put that on the record, but uh, Anton Fear came over one day on a Sunday and I had been practicing it. And he said, hey, what's that? I said, I, I wrote this for somebody else. 
And he said, wow, that's pretty good. I go, yeah, but it won't fit on the record. And he said, yeah, but it's your thing. And so I go, okay, I'll put it on. You know, I, yeah. I tried to be a good soldier. I always do. If somebody's producing me, I just say, yeah, okay. You know, what do you want? Well, do you think I could coax you into playing a little bit more, jamming on just some, just yeah. like a couple of bars or something? Yeah, anything. In them. You want me to? Would, do would that? you play some? Since we're here, here I, just, me, I could me. put some fingers on those strings. What's this song called? Well, I'm going to give a give Minute Waltz by Chopin a, a try. Yeah, it's a really pretty song, and in some ways it almost sounds like a country tune. I, I, I put a little bit of a, a rhythm in the boomerang, and hopefully it'll work out. It's a nice little tune. It's gorgeous. I love that. Yeah, they the little nine over the five chord it's a nice song i've been kind of working on it i can tell you've been working on that i mean <laughs> it's like yeah you've uh, completely got the voice flowing through your guitar there i love those little retards you're kind of throwing in there at the end just just now yeah i made a couple mistakes though it's kind of tricky this part because it still could be murky this, that part's always hard and getting the melody louder than the bass notes that's like getting uh, three guys in a one-bedroom apartment, you know, one of those <laughs> chords. <laughs> so anyway. Right. <laughs> Knuckle buster. You know, uh, Autumn Leaves, or is it, could we do it in, uh, like, where the first chord's C minor? 
Yeah, let's just, let's try, um... I don't know, man. Now, of course, you have another group that is, I don't know if it's like an on-again, off-again thing, but the sort of jazz pop super group, the Little Willies, (laughs) starring, of course, on lead vocals, and I imagine she plays a lot of piano, Nora Jones. Yeah. She's also on one of your solo records, right? Like Cry Me a River, a couple Yeah, she's actually on a few of them. She does Cry Me a River on Heaven is Creepy, 
and she does a, a, a really nice version of Sweet Dreams on American Hips. And she does a Ray Charles tune that Josh Dion sings on uh, Live at Rockwood called Here Am I on Dream Dictionary. Um, and there might be another, but it's hard to remember. I have 12 records. But yeah, she's been nice enough and generous enough to, you know, just come over and sing a, a, a tune on almost whenever I make a record. Come on and cry me a river Cry me a river I cried a river over you When we'd record our records, we did two records. Uh, one thing I learned from her was she, you know, we'd do maybe three takes, no more. And she'd change it up. Like we'd do one take, and prior to that, and it was kind of the beginning of when I started changing a little bit, because um, I learned so much from her. We'd do a take, and I'd think, oh yeah, I'm like honing in on something. And then she'd do it different, or change the key. And, and then it would be, oh, okay. And it, I, I can't say I was resentful, but I was a little insecure about it because I tend to, at the time, like to hone in on an idea and go, okay, I'm getting an intro. And by the third take, I got the intro. But it would be like, more or less, like things would change, not always, but she'd play it a little differently. She'd sing it differently. And it was so fresh and so musical. And it's one of the things I enjoy uh, about the first and second records we did is I hear us just playing. You know, it isn't like, here's my well-polished intro. Everything's a little raw, a little musical. And it really influenced me to how I record since then, uh, even on my own records. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, some of the earlier 10-gallon cat records, the first one in particular, I had worked out the solos. And they're really good solos, and they're compositional, almost like the guy in the cars or whatever, I could, or Hotel LEDs. California or something. LED in episode 70. Oh, what was it? Just, he was just on here recently. Really? What did cars. he say? He works his solos out, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just got to hear the podcast, folks, to get the whole story about all the great cars songs. <laughs> I will tune yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. You know, he loves to compose. Like, that's what drew him to Rick Ocasek. He's like, I'm hearing stuff over these songs. Like, this is a million years before the car or a, or a few weeks before the cars well even though there's a great place for that like um you know after playing with nora and dan reeser and tim lunsell and tony mason and richard hammond i started to get i guess more of a jazz mentality where i didn't really want to listen to myself be perfect i wanted to listen to myself playing music um and sometimes there's just unexpected things you do. And those are the things I started to appreciate, which really led up to live at Rockwood Music Hall. Um, I mean, there's no overdubs, there's no nothing. It's we're playing. And sometimes, uh, you know, I, I think, oh, I could have done this better or I would have done this better. And sometimes I think, uh, particularly on Cock and Bull Story with Nels Klein, which is 10 minutes long, I think we change keys twice. I mean, totally 
you spontaneously? know spontaneously and in unison <laughs> you know and there's some just some great moments that I'm really proud of that I enjoy as a listener you know, I don't put it on and think oh boy you know um I don't know. It doesn't feel narcissistic. I really feel like, wow, those guys are good. Oh, wait, one of those guys is me. And uh, I don't feel that way when I listen to a worked out thing. I think, I don't know. It's just a different feeling. It's craftsmanship. Well, let's go back to the beginning for a second, because I think I read somewhere that you at one point in your youth chose album tracks to check out and listen to based on the length of them <laughs> yeah it's true and why well that's you know if people are anybody who's a you know has heard me speak before knows this story but it was uh so i'm 12 years old and i'm in south san francisco and you know it's pre-internet it's 1974 or something so it's hard to get info but i know somewhere that i love long improv but i don't know what it's called but I have enough sense to know that it isn't done in two and a half minutes, you know. So I wouldn't necessarily go uh, get a uh, Eric Burden and the Animals record. So I'd go through bins and, and just find a record and look at it and go, this only has one song on this side. I'm getting it. And so I ended up getting uh, John Coltrane live in Japan. He does a piece on earth and it's actually two sides of a record. Um, I got Larry Coriel barefoot boy. Yeah. It's not a very well-known record, but it's pretty good. There's a, a track on there called something like call to the higher consciousness. And it's a one key vamp. That's pretty nice. Um, and I got John McLaughlin devotion, uh, you know, I got a couple clinkers. I remember I got Rare Earth live in concert and they did a Get Ready. That was like a whole side of a record that, you know, I didn't hate it. I think I listened to it anyway because, I mean, I used to, you know, drive to the record store. It was USC. I mean, it was like Target before there was Target. And go look at the record I was going to buy the next week. <laughs> you know, it was definitely yeah. pre, you know, have 10,000 tracks. You know, you got your record. Even if you didn't love it, you still listen to a whole a bunch, a whole bunch of times. But I got Cream uh, Live Volume 2. I got Cream Live Volume 1. Then I got Cream Wheels of Fire. Um, and uh, a lot of great stuff. And it was based initially off this, the length of a track. And then I got more information or I'd branch out. Because you knew they were going deep. I was hoping they'd go deep. Um, and I just, I just like that type of thing. Um, it's funny because um, one of the real important records I got was Derek and the Dominoes Live. Again, I, I'm still not even playing guitar yet. I started playing guitar right when I turned 14. Oh, so, so you were buying all these records before then? Yeah, I was a civilian. You were a civilian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, and again, I still have... I still have that Derek and Domino's record right there. I have another uh, copy because I made a poster out of it and wrote like I've this stencil and had it hanging up where I could stare at it all the time. Like I was a big fan before I played, you know, so, um, but I got this Derek and the Domino's record and there was a track on there, Let It Rain. And the uh, pre drum solo section of the solo is really why I play guitar. I mean, all this stuff, I loved Cream and I loved, you know, John McLaughlin, but this particular solo, for some reason, I just obsessed on it for months. I mean, I put it on over and over and over. And uh, 
I just said, I, I'm going to have to, I want to play guitar or I'm going to go insane. And so uh, that's the track probably that propelled me into playing guitar. To this day, I think it's a really fantastic solo. I mean, he does stuff like, you know, uh, and, uh, and probably a lot of you know stuff and it, it, people may hear it now and go oh that's cliche ridden but they're cliches because he played them in a lot of i mean this is this is that's before all this that's before sultans of swing and hotel california and Leonard skinner or whoever Skinnerd. but ironically you know fast forward 20 years uh rolling stone magazine did a, a thing where i i don't know i guess it was in the magazine the hundred worst solos of all time and that was voted number one as the worst solo of all time and i i, I think it well i can top that <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can top that too you know personally and with other solos um but yeah it was it was strange i thought boy that's the reason i play guitar and uh what i like about that solo and eric clapton at the time because i mean you know eric clapton isn't super fashionable right now like I mean, maybe he is. If I met him, I'd like faint. But, you know, I I mean, and there's other players. I love John McLaughlin. I love, you know, Django Reinhardt, Roy Buchanan, we haven't even talked about. But this particular solo is so fast. And it's not fast in a Yngwie Malmsteen way or in a John McLaughlin way or in a Julian Lodge way. But it's fun in its, I, it fast, I mean, it's fast, in its ideas. Like he, it's, like a machine gun of ideas and themes and he plays a theme and then he'll play another theme and he'll play another theme and it really influenced me in that that's kind of what I do I'll I'll kind of go in and move in for a minute on a theme I'm and, and it, when I teach guitar I tell people I don't go through this whole long-winded story about Let It Rain, but I say, well, live with that a little bit. Play it forwards, play it backwards. And Clapton always did that. He'd play like something forwards, backwards, and sideways, and cream. And yeah. I mean, now I hear him, and though I am indebted to him and, you know, am humbly his student, uh, you know, sometimes you think, I wonder why these guys never play the major third. You right. know, uh, but he's just not coming from that. But yeah. or why Keith Richards doesn't sound like Alan Holdsworth. I mean, he's been playing long enough. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know some. But they do their thing and they stay there, and it's great. You know, yeah. well, you're naming guitar players that all have a sound that you could recognize. That's the most amazing thing. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I love Link Ray, and I wouldn't expect Link Ray uh, to grow uh, or have grown into uh, Ry Cooter. You know, uh, but sometimes I do wonder, you know, sometimes when I hear blues, I mean, I either like it's super raw or I kind of want to hear a guy playing a major third here and there. Yeah. Like playing, over the change. I like to hear. I like to hear the changes now. Uh, un, you know, if it's Bill Jennings or uh, Billy Butler, who used to play with Bill Doggett, those guys play a little more swingy. That's what I'll listen to. So Billy Butler plays on Honky Tonk. One of the best solos of all time. One of the best solos of all time. And uh, Bill, but Bill Jennings plays on 
Big Boy, and there's two versions of Big Boy, and they're both great. And Bill Jennings is really fantastic, but sometimes I'm not sure which one is which. I have an idea, but you know, it's chancy. But there's some guys who know it, like, you know, they know Beatle records and which pressing. You know, there's guys, they're like starch, like Trekkies or something, you know? <laughs> exactly. Now, of course, it would be utterly remiss of me not to ask you about Roy Buchanan. I know him somewhat, but uh, what are some of the ways that he influenced your playing? Or is it possible to even narrow it down? Yeah, I, I mean, it's possible. Um, you know, I got the first record, again, before I played guitar, um, I, I got the first record, and there's a track on there called Pete's Blues, and it's what I kind of based the tune me and you played, and you played so well, uh, uh, Blues for Roy, uh, based on that track. And the track, I, I, I wish I was, it's like... I messed it up, but it's something like that. That's the whole tune, okay? And he does everything over it i mean he does his harmonic deal where you're going and i'm not it's not completely coming out but that thing he does his you know deal he does octaves he does detuning but the most important thing he did to for me at that time and even today is he plays like middle eastern like uh, I think it's this with the flat. I think it's called flat Lydian with the uh, flat seven, not the. But he does some major seven, but it's like a flat seven, flat six, major third scale, and that just knocked me out at the time and still does. Um, and I also liked his. He you know he did volume swells, tone swells. He was the first, and I was lucky enough to see him play a whole bunch. Um, I was talking about this to a different guy a couple weeks ago. When San Francisco, the pre-89 quake, you could, there was a, you could take the freeway and take the Broadway exit. And you'd be, right. you could like club hop. Yeah. And uh, it was then that fell down and they never replaced it. And it got much harder to get there. And I used to just drive by the stone and see who was playing. And sometimes if there was parking, I'd just park and go. And one time I did it with Roy and I was, and I had liked his records and I had seen him a couple times and, uh, you know, it was good, but it was, it didn't, you know, I just didn't really want to go back. I felt like I loved the first record. I loved the first two records, but um, I didn't really uh, feel like his band was, you know, of his caliber. Anyway, so I pull over at the Stone. I go in there. There's like nobody in the Stone. And Roy's there. And it was just like incredible. Um, and he was the first guy I saw that did hybrid picking. Again, this is the Stone Age, you know, it's like pre-YouTube. It sounds hard to believe, but, you know, you, you'd hear stuff and you'd have to assume or you'd think, is he using a pick? So I saw him use his middle finger on something, like, I don't know what it was, or he'd do, like, you know, like to see that and uh, was really uh, monumental. I saw him do tone swells. I saw him do vo volume swells. I just saw him play. The other thing that he did that really made an impression on me was he didn't use vibrato really that much. Um, I mean, we're talking 
now maybe 80. I mean, guys are just going, you know, at that right. time. And, and Roy would do uh, like something like, he'd just do, I can't even do it because I have too much reverb on about. amazing it's like we can forget how deep you can go with just two or three notes like you just went so deep <laughs> and if i may ask you give us some tips on i mean you get such a great tone out of these telecasters and fender princeton reverbs i remember you used to have a Klon centaur pedal that you throw in front of it but oh, what yeah. are you do you have any tips or you just turn it up or where do you well i mean i i turn i usually turn the the amp up a lot um, because I like to get it out of the guitar and I kind of am one of those guys who like uh, a guitar on three or four like I feel like it has a little more oomph and then obviously I've headroom like I remember I read a Les Paul interview and he said if I see a guy go to his amp at the gig I know he's in trouble <laughs> and, and I kind of know what he means like Brutal. It, you want to just get it all here um, that's funny I was just at the Iridium last night talking to Kevin Cadigan, who was playing there, he's been on this podcast too from Third Eye Blind, and he was talking about yeah, yeah, he felt like the ghost of Les Paul was watching him, which is yeah. awesome. And then yeah. here he comes, he visits us in this interview. That is such a funny quote, man. Yeah. Like you're in trouble. So I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, that's a good quote. I saw Les Paul there. Uh, it was great. He was funny too, and he was really heavy. Like I mean, he only had one or two fingers, but he played a ton of music. I mean, it seemed like his hand was a little rigid. But it didn't matter, and he played really loud, which was like good loud, you know. Like he wanted every note to be heard. What are these amps? First of all, you favor sixty Silverface. I mean, I I just yeah, I I got the sil I got a bunch of silver faces and a couple black faces, right after I moved to New York because I brought one Princeton, and uh, it it you know after about three months or so it broke down one gig and I thought geez I don't have another amp. And I had a feeling, we're talking 2003, I guess, maybe two, 2002, 2003. I just had a feeling Princeton's would become popular because I feel in some ways that I am a representative of the guitar community. I'm basically, you know, at the time, like a guy in his 50s. I mean, that's a big part of you know the guitar community i think at least when i go to a guitar show or something you know it's not a bunch yeah. of 15 year old kids i mean well they're out there they just don't have a, a spending limit yeah i mean i hope they're out there i see a lot of young kids at my show there's a so. site called instagram it's now you should check it out they're, they're on there <laughs> i'm totally on instagram i know man. you are you totally are what yeah. is it it's jim campolongo yeah. and i just put up a post of my 62 strat okay Back in 2002, 2003, I thought that Princeton's were an underrated amp. And it, there was, they still had the stigma of that they weren't loud enough. They were, you know, like a champ or something. And I know that I brought my Princeton, you know, I was playing it in San Francisco. I brought it to New York. I was playing it at the Knitting Factory. Stick a mic in front of it. And the thing was like, sounded like a mountain but it broke down and I, I i i didn't know that many people this guy david kolker lent me his which was really nice i didn't even know him but he was a friend of tim lentzel who was playing bass with me and i thought i better get some 
I get one. And they were 500 bucks. I'm so jealous because we're all priced out. It's like Bay Area real estate or Manhattan. Like <laughs> if you don't didn't get in on the ground floor, you, it's hard to come back into those markets. Are there any like hand wired like Victorias or any equivalents that you would recommend? Have you ever tried any, or are you just you're so happy with yours you never really have to check them out? Well, but. I don't have to check them out, but to me, guys always ask me, or not always, but. I mean, I just think, why not get a, a silver face Princeton Reverb? They're up still about 14, right? I mean, I'm guessing. I mean, they might have went up. Above, no, I think you're right. You know, 14. I mean, who knows? They might have gone up in the duration of this interview. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, but that's another reason why to get them is they really hold their value. Um, so I got a few of them. I just went on a little buying spree, very careful and uh, very conservative because, I, like I said, it, I try to not buy a bunch of stuff. I just don't want it. But I started getting, you know, I'd see one and my friend Dave Boat was helping me. He'd say, hey, I think I saw a good one. It was 500 bucks. So I ended up getting a few of them and continued to until they hit about 800. Yeah. And then I said, okay, I'm good. And, you know, now it's like, well, you know, Jim, sometimes it's real estate. Sometimes it's important to just whittle your collection down to the seven or eight Princetons you really need. <laughs> no, I think I'm down. I have whittled down. Um, I love that you're not a collector. You are a player. <laughs> there's no, you can't be more of a player than you are. Uh, I don't One know last that. question about gear appreciation, you know, back to that Klein. I mean, those, that little pedal, two knobs, those are like 1400 now as well, which is crazy. I sold mine. Well, I was going to ask you, not so much from the collection vantage point, but do you just go straight into your Princetons when you play? Oh, yeah. You're not even using the little boost? No boost. Maybe you were just using that because we were like at a smaller room level. uh, You know, I don't recall that. I used it on my second record, um, and I used it during the Martha Wainwright tour that I did many years ago. But I just plug straight in. Lately, I've been using this Wawa, and it's great. Jam pedal makes a, a, a Wahako, I think it's pronounced. And it's got this like kind of psychedelic paint job. And they make great pedals. And I love this Wawa because I had a, for my high school graduation, I got a crybaby Wawa pedal. And... Uh, I forget what happened to it. You know, I had a big muff fuzz too. I don't know what happened to that. I wish I had that thing still. But anyway, I got, I lost it over the years and I never have really liked Wawa as much as that first one I got from high school. And I don't know if it was because of that era or what I was, the pot I was smoking at the time. You know, I don't know. I don't do that anymore, but I just never found a Wawa I liked. And uh, then the jam, I found this jam pedals one, and I use it now, um, and I use it subtly, I think, and I use it as a, to get sound or feedback, and it's great, and it so and it's a little a bit of an overdrive. So I've been using that man, about the past four or five months, and it definitely will be on my next record. Now, what about for those of us who can't have a '59 Telecaster? I know that you've. You had, first of all, you had a um, signature custom shop Fender. And I know those probably aren't, you know, custom shops. There's not like a million of them out there. So that's kind of an exquisite find if someone finds one of those, right? Do they still make those? No, they just made 50. I I see them pop up once in a while um, and they've held their value, which is great. You were telling me about another great 
Telly style guitar. Yeah, I worked with uh, Chiho Han, you know, Chiho Han, H-A-H-N, of Han Guitars, who I met uh, many years ago. He, he came to a living room gig and brought one of his guitars, and he said, hey, I want you to check this out. And I played it at the gig and loved it. And the next day, um, I played it on David Letterman, because I was playing with Martha Wainwright. And from that, from that, we developed a really nice friendship. He was so sweet uh, and the guitar was great so we talked about making a, a signature model for years now and to make a long story short one morning I woke up because we had all these configurations and really fancy guitars I said why don't we make a really affordable telly and call it the Model C it'll be like the Model T and he said that's great so he did and he did a great job I mean it's wait what's it called Model C. You didn't want to do Model T as in Telecaster. No, I wanted C for Campolongo. Oh, of course. Okay, thank you. I'm just, <laughs> I need this. I'm slow. <laughs> well, not th not that slow. <laughs> I mean, it's I could see. I actually I like your idea. Um, but uh, Model C. There was a Model C car, by the way. I think there was a Model A for sure. Well, I'm a fan of not necessarily having the artist's name plastered in huge <laughs> inlay well, like neon lights in the back <laughs> right like i mean you know like luke we're speaking of steve lukather is he, lately he's just like l3 or something he doesn't you know he, like you don't people don't necessarily want your name because like model c is a really subtle way of yeah i have a little signature on the back of the headstock but i agree i mean actually you know what that that one frankenstein telly i have on the back hubert sumlin signed it who's uh it's that one right there oh, yeah no i just yeah. i'm looking jim's looking at me like i'm totally confused because i just realized this whole time i've been playing the han yeah model yeah. c it's in my hand yeah that's a prototype i mean it's really much the thing but it doesn't have my signature in yeah. the back but that's it it's a nice guitar yeah. right it's beautiful i mean 1495 free shipping in the u.s with the gig bag so we tried to make a really affordable boutique telly, and, and I'm really proud of him, I and love I love it. working with Chiho. And he has another like line of really great guitars. We're talking about making a second one, maybe a little influenced by the Duo Sonic, mm -hmm. which I love the way those guitars look. You know, it's funny you talk about plastering your name, too, because... I would never have anybody sign the front of my telly that I could think of. I mean, I don't even, wouldn't even want Jimi Hendrix. Like, it's kind of like you're promoting somebody else while you're playing. Right, that right. isn't you. But I tried to have someone sign the front of this Telecaster. You're 59? Yeah, but it didn't work out. And it was Vincent Price. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, right here. Like, I, I'm really a big fan. Oh and yeah. I thought that would be cool. Like if you had if I had somebody sign the front of my guitar, like Vincent Price or Boris Karloff you or got somebody some like cool shit in here. That old Vincent Price thing, that old like <laughs> seafaring clock compass and most you know, the thing that first caught my eye when I would looked at your desk was these uh your work table, whatever studio table, these uh totally analog old metronomes classics yeah. like like antiques yeah well this one is for sure i mean it sounds so nice like 
Dude, I just, That's I nice love thing. your analog realm here, with your vinyl and your old antique. <laughs> well, I do have an ox, but <laughs> that said. Yeah, um, well, you, you get the best of both worlds. Like. I, I, mostly, yeah. I mean, the stuff like that, that metronome, it's, it's, it, I mean, the ones that go beep, 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 that are like 10 yeah. times cheaper, I'll grant you oh, yeah. that. But the beeping kind of gets to my ear. Well, cool, man. It's been incredible hanging out with you in your lair here. One of my favorite parts about this show is that I get to visit people and sometimes faraway places and you know well, drop the copter down here and you're the man you i mean you know you're a great player you're a good guy you oh, know it's you have a great spirit <laughs> i mean how could anybody not want to talk to you oh like, my gosh i mean it's it's fantastic and it was playing was fun i mean i really really feel happy <laughs> and grateful that we did this it was great oh, man, and it felt you. like hanging with you you know, so it, that's yeah, a bonus. Dude. I hope I hope your listeners enjoy it as much as I could speak for both of us, I guess, as, as we did. They're going to love you, man. First time listeners who haven't heard you are just going to love it. And of course, your fans, I think, are going to be, are going to really enjoy this episode. <laughs> Jim, keep it alive till you're 105. With a little luck, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah. Mm. 